and as we've come together, have truly been uplifting in many ways already. And truly, we can already see it has been good for us to be here. But also, we might look forward to the edification that God shall provide through His Word as we continue our study of the Colossian letter tonight. I would encourage you to turn with me as we continue that series of studies from Colossians chapter 1. And I went into the second chapter of that noble book this, this evening. All the while being reminded that though these matters were now penned precisely somewhat over 2,000 years ago, nonetheless, they are eternal and timeless in their thrust, reaching not only to our day, but in fact until time shall be no more, reminding all of those who would be the saints of God of the power and thrust and beauty of these matters and the greatness to be found in them. If I might remind you of some of the things we saw briefly, as we studied the last two lessons in this series. By way of introduction, they would be a fair way to start tonight's lesson, ever so brief indeed, because some of the last comments in verses 22 and 23 will in fact be those that shall begin our study also this, this evening. The theme of this book is the Christ of the church. Paul never strays far from the theme of the absolute preeminence and greatness of Christ, reminding these Colossian brethren that all things in this life and the one hereafter if not based upon Him, are vain, empty, and ultimately eternally fruitless in their endeavors. And thus He would remind them of the greatness of His preeminence in chapter 1, verse 18. The fact that in the church and outside, even in creation, all preeminence belongs to Him. In chapter 1, verse 6, the fact that God's grace can and must be known in truth. It is not guesswork. Also in verses 9 through 12 of chapter 1, the reminder that you and I are to walk pleasing before God and the effort must rest upon us to obey faithfully and to bring our lives into pleasing compliance to His will. And then we also saw the great benefits and blessings that belong to us. Indeed, it has well been noted. In fact, I think Brother Keeble noted it more than once. The great privilege that's ours to be Christians. Simply to wear that name the forgiveness of sins that we enjoy, the sainthood and the characteristic, char characteristic of knowing God through His Son, Jesus Christ. But those things remind us about the nature of the mystery. Sometimes there are those who enjoy reading a good mystery, perhaps going to a bookstore, purchasing it, reading about it, where it keeps us in suspense. There's the word mystery that appears not once but twice in the reading this evening. What is meant by that mystery? Who is being discussed? What is the mystery revealing? Is there a way to know the answer to that mystery today? We shall learn tonight that it was not the butler that did it, but rather it was none other than the Blessed Son. I'd invite you to take a journey with me as we uncover the mystery to be found in Colossians 1 verses 23 through chapter 2 verse 3 and learn more and even more deeply about the greatness of that mystery. As we begin that study... I need to remind you and ask you to revisit with me beginning in verse 22 of chapter number 1. For that will begin the discussion that Paul continues in that very text that we start tonight. On that occasion, Paul again noted that in his body, namely Christ's body, in the body of his flesh through death, to present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight. Those who approach God then through the efficacy of Christ's blood are able to be presented not only holy but unblameable and unreprovable in God's sight. When He sees you and me, He sees those who by nature of Christ's cleansing blood can stand justified, sanctified, and holy. 
and as such can stand completely righteous in his sight. Not that it's by our merit, not that we have earned it, for that would be impossible, but because of the precious grace of God through the love of his Son. As that fact is amplified in verse 23, the very last verse we studied last week, we notice it's contingent upon our continued faithfulness. If you stand grounded and settled and continue in the faith, we cannot believe that one is able thus to not fall from grace or to not fall aside from faithfulness. Paul himself affirmed that such must be the case in verse 23. With that very statement, though, he hastens us to verse 24. For this verse and the ones that follow shall build rather amazingly upon these we've just seen. You might notice again as you read this that there's no period in these verses that we have just most recently studied. Not at the end of verse 22, not at the end of verse 23, not at the end of verse 24. This is one continuing thought in a rather lengthy Greek sentence. In verse 24, Who now rejoice in my sufferings for you, and fill up that which is behind of the afflictions of Christ in my flesh for his body's sake, which is the church? Whereof I am made a minister, according to the dispensation of God, which is given to me for you, to fulfill the word of God. Even the mystery which hath been hid from ages and from generations, but now is made manifest to his saints. To whom God would make known what is the riches of the glory of, his, of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Whom we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom, that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. Whereunto I also labor, striving according to his working, which worketh in me mightily. Verse 24 opens, the one that we just began with reading a moment earlier, opens with Paul making mention of the rejoicing that he felt in his sufferings. And already that may seem to be a difficult matter. One is able to experience suffering and yet rejoice. Paul did. And the character of that rejoicing was such a bountiful thing, not only seen in the Colossian letter, but many others as well. In fact, under what circumstances did Paul pen this book? As we learned as we studied that timeline of the New Testament, Paul was in a Roman prison at the time the Colossian letter was written. In prison, as the book of Acts closes, awaiting his sentence and appearing before none other than the Roman emperor because he had been accused and because there were others who were very interested in bringing Paul to death. Nonetheless, Paul said that he rejoiced in his sufferings for them. It was not only for the church in Colossae, but many other congregations. Paul specifically endured suffering on their behalf. I list for your consideration some things from the Second Corinthian letter about this very issue. In chapter 11 of that book, Paul made a listing of some of the things he experienced, be it shipwreck, be it beatings, be it various perils of his countrymen or otherwise, but in chapter 12, he makes a statement that seems in many ways truly a remarkable matter. That was the occasion in which he prayed that his thorn in the flesh might be removed or taken from him. And God said, not so, Paul, but my grace is sufficient for you. In the very aftermath of that, Paul was another to say that when I am weak, then I am strong. And then I will glory in my infirmities. I will glory in my afflictions. Because in them Christ's name is magnified, and in them 
It's not I that draw the attention, and it's not my name that is held high, but it's when I am weak and Christ's name and his work is so powerfully complimented, that is what's more important. What a wonderful attitude to have. Paul exhibited that to these Colossians, and how meaningful that would be to them because they too, as we shall see later in the book, were enduring difficulties and trials due to these false teachers that had come their way and brought to them things that were not entirely easy to understand or entirely easily pleasing to follow. That thought might well be continued on by noting in verse number 24, and fill up that which is behind of the afflictions of Christ. If we pause and ask, what did Paul mean when he says that these issues filled up that which is left behind of the afflictions of Christ? There are some who in a very injurious way through the years have stated that perhaps that means that Christ's sacrifice and the sufferings that he endured were not entirely adequate, but rather it's necessary for others to complete or fill up the measure of what was lacking in Christ's sacrifice. May such a thought never cross our mind. Christ's sacrifice was absolutely entirely sufficient and adequate to accomplish the salvation of the human soul. That which Paul meant here was that all of us are called upon in our loyalty and association to Jesus to endure a degree of affliction, hardship, and persecution that's simply a part of living for Jesus. Did not Paul say, Yea, and all who will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. 2 Timothy 3 verse 12. That thought thus is not left beyond the realm of guesswork. It is a matter of fact that you and I shall not be looked upon as kindly and favorably as those in the world who will pat the world on its back and compliment it for its ungodliness. But those who shall stand firm on the truth of God will often endure insult, They'll often endure difficulties and trials in a variety of ways. That is what is meant by this filling up. You and I too, just as Jesus said in John 15, 19, the world has hated me and it will hate you too. You see, those who will stand firm for the word of God shall be described as Paul did those in the first and second Corinthian letter who are as though they are the offscouring of the world, not looked upon favorably, but rather so often described with revile and insult. One of the last things that Jesus stated in the Beatitudes falls under that discussion as well, doesn't it? Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then he continued on with an even more expansive statement. Did he not also say, Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake? Rejoice, he would say. At that point, we again see this matter rejoicing in the aftermath or continuance of suffering. The Apostle Paul knew very well firsthand all that that meant. This statement of verse 24 closes with another interesting comparison. In fact, a direct equivalency. For his body's sake, which is the church... Christ's body is the church. As often as that's stated in the New Testament, we cannot again doubt it. But note that in verse 25, the thought continues. It is in that body, Paul says, he was made a minister, a wonderful one able to proclaim the nature of the Word of God. 
That word minister, as it appears from the Greek here, simply means a helper, perhaps a deacon, perhaps a servant. The context must define and identify the specific usage. It is here not identifying an office as per se, the deacon that serves along with an elder. Paul says he had been a wonderfully selected and chosen servant of God. And as such, in verse 25, notice that it was by the means of the dispensation of God which is given me to you to fulfill the word of God. That word dispensation is a rather intriguing word, isn't it? On occasion, we employ that with respect to the various dispensations of time, the mosaic, the patriarchal, the Christian. What is that word from which this one appears? In a very amazing fashion, it simply means this. It means by the divine plan, according to the management of God, or to put that another way, as it relates to the opportunity for stewardship and responsibility given the intended blessing of the God of heaven. Paul says, by the gracious goodness of God, I have been given by his plan the nature of proclaiming the word of God to you. There's no question all of us feel very blessed as well when we can open the pages of the word of God and be immersed within it to allow it to operate in our life, to allow it to control our thinking, our actions, and the deeds of our body. That's truly a wonderful thing, isn't it? To know that we're being guided by a power far higher than ourselves and far more wonderful and perfect in every regard. This dispensation mentioned in verse 25 help us see that there is a sense in which you and I have the wonderful opportunity to participate in a work similar to that one. Not that we are inspired the way that Paul was. Not that we shall see a road, a light on the road to Damascus like he did. But is it not true that we also are called upon to be ministering servants? The words of Paul in 2 Timothy 2 verse 2 perhaps help explain that matter. When he says, "...and the things that thou hast heard of me among many witnesses, the same commit thou to faithful men." who shall be able to teach others also. Well, what a blessing is ours to be those who are in earthen vessels, 2 Corinthians 4, 7, who've been entrusted with the Word of God, 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 2 through 4, and all the while be able to share that with others and help them on the precious roadway to eternity that they may stand justified and right before their Maker. Paul felt that blessedness. And in verse number 25, he concludes it by saying, to fulfill the word of God. That word fulfill means to proclaim fully. Paul did not withhold anything from the word of God in his preaching. In Acts 20 he said, I have held back nothing. You and I today realize we are not at liberty to take verses or chapters or particularly whole books from the nature of our preaching, but rather all of it and to stand four square upon it. Realizing that only the truth can set men free, John 8, 31 and 2. And that truth is the entirety of God's Word. And just as Jehoiakim was not given liberty to remove pieces of the Old Testament, Jeremiah 36, we are not given liberty to remove any verse or even a word from a verse in the New. These things challenge us to appreciate that that Word of God is described somewhat interestingly in verse 26. Notice again the wording as verse 25 moves into 6. To fulfill the word of God, even the mystery which hath been hid from ages and from generations. There is a sense, there is a form in which in some way 
The Word of God is called a mystery. Here's that word mystery I mentioned a bit earlier in the lesson tonight. What is that mystery? Have not you and I been given the sum total of all of God's Word in full appreciation of what it allows and what it discusses? What is the mystery then? To what does Paul refer? A little bit more effort and work shall be needed on our part to fully appreciate that significance. But thankfully, Paul identifies it all for us. I would ask that you notice some of the things about it. First of all, verse 26. This mystery hath been hid from ages and generations. There was a time, an epoch, an era of human history when God did not operate by fully revealing the contents of that mystery. Rather, those individuals, though they were able to live in a way pleasing to God, lived in a different religious fashion. There was a time when, though it had been concealed, he says in verse 26, but now is revealed, made manifest to his saints. Thus, we are not yet waiting for the time of the revelation. Paul said the Colossians lived in a time when the revelation had already occurred, when the concealment was no longer in place. Rather, it had been revealed. We can already pause, at least for a moment, and note that the Colossians were being addressed in a very beautiful way by Paul. Remember, these false teachers that had come into that area were false teachers who were teaching them that first the old law was at least in a way still binding and they were still in need of circumcision and other artifacts of the old Mosaic institution. But they were also being told that in order to be sanctified and to live pleasing before God, you need a special kind of knowledge, one that, not surprisingly, we as Gnostic teachers are able to give you. We are the ones that have the key to unlock all the wonderful knowledges that God has hidden. Paul here says, well, there is a mystery indeed, but it's not the mystery these false teachers are telling you. It's not a mystery that God wishes to unlock through some special knowledge. What is this mystery according to Paul? Let's quickly notice verse number 27. To whom God would make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles. What is it, Paul? Which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. The centerpiece of this mystery, likely we could have guessed, if the centerpiece in terms of preeminence is Christ, and that is the center idea set forth in the book, Paul says, now that mystery, Christ in you Gentiles, the hope of glory, it's Christ. He is the mystery that is now fully revealed, God's plan for human redemption made known. It is a shame, as it was in the days of Gnosticism and continues so today, when men choose to tamper with or pervert the purity and truth of God's plan for salvation and crumble it beneath things that men have built on top of it. Christ in you, the hope of glory. These features perhaps ask us to look more carefully at what Paul was saying. I submit these thoughts for your consideration. From ages and generations, some things were hidden. There was a time in the patriarchal era of, of, of man's history when God dealt with humankind in a rather direct fashion. But notice that throughout those ages, he communicated his will and he dropped nuggets of prophecy and promise that pointed forward well over, in some instances, 3,000 years. All the while, it captured the attention of men and women and they looked forward to the revelation of all that those promises held in store. 
However, they did not live to experience it. They did not live long enough to feel it. However, the Mosaic Institution, after some 2,500 years, was given especially to those of Israelite ancestry, the children of Abraham through Jacob. To these people, God gave another law, a law that was, of course, detailed in great regard in the books of Genesis through, through Deuteronomy. For 1,500 years, the Jews were expected to live to and keep that law. Notice again that many, many times within that law, God spoke about another day that was coming, another age and another time that would be superior to this one, that is, that Mosaic institution. However, again, those worthies of that era did not live long enough to see it. Those men like David and Solomon, those others like Elijah and Elisha, those prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah, they died long before the things of which they spoke came to be reality. One can almost feel the excited energy that dwelled in the heart and mind of men like John the Baptist. He was the forerunner of the Christ and he knew from the prophecy of Isaiah 40 verses 1 to 8 and Malachi 3 verses 1 to 3 that the time of the Messiah was here, the time of the Lord's fulfillment, the time when all those great prophecies would now come to fruition. Notice that during those ages and times, men longed for what you and I now have. If ever there was a time you and I could feel blessed, it would seem that texts like this should bring that to our mind. In 1 Peter 1, beginning in verse 10, Peter in fact addressed this point when he said, The angels desire to look into what you now experience. And what's more, the prophets of olden time inquired diligently to find that which you now have. You see, they wondered the exactness of what they prophesied. The Spirit of God told them what to say and what to pen. The Spirit of the Lord spake by me, and His word was in my tongue, to quote 2 Samuel 23, 2. You and I live, though, to experience this in fullness. It's not yet something that will come to be in the future. In Hebrews 11, verses 38 through 40, we read this rather scintillating text, "...of whom the world was not worthy." Of whom was the world not worthy, if we might interject that thought? The inspired writer had just listed person after person in that great honor roll of faith, beginning at Abel and terminating down there in the prophets. He said, the world wasn't worthy of these. They wandered in deserts and mountains and dens and caves of the earth. They per produced and proceeded in faith, the text says. But then verse number 40. God having reserved some better thing for us that they without us should not be made perfect. Isn't that a sobering thought? All that Noah and all that Abraham and all that Isaac and Jacob and the others did in their lifetime, they never could be made perfect without the reality of what you and I now have. That's an amazing consideration, isn't it? That what Christ has now brought to reality through us, they are the benefactors of it as well. These thoughts in Colossians chapter 1 squarely dealt with those false teachers that were telling them that it wasn't just Christ, it was Him plus something else. And he, Paul said, not so, my friends. Jesus is preeminent. Christ in you, the hope of glory. That's the mystery. Notice also in verses 27 and 28, as we have looked interesting at that mystery, 
we see that he said in verse 27, God would make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery. God has revealed it. You and I today must be very careful in regard to any person who claims to have some secret kind of knowledge, some secret kind of code or things that allow certain knowledge for some but not others, it is a fantasy, plain and simple. All truth has been fully revealed, and it is easily accessible to each and every one of us. The Gnostics, you see, came to be dealt with very powerfully by John, the apostle, who later in the books of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John would deal with this same heresy. As we close chapter number 1 of Colossians, might we notice that the means to be revealed in regard to salvation from sin is seen in verses 28 and 29. Whom we preach, namely Jesus, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. Perfect through his own efforts, perfect through his own sense of goodness, perfect through his own capability of being a neighbor, Never may it be so. Perfect in Christ. That word perfect means to have reached maturity, to have grown in the faith. As we consider that very thought, might we be reminded of the greatness of Hebrews 9, verses 11 and following? In that very text, the Hebrew writer reminds us that Christ being come in high priest of good things to come by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building, neither by the blood of goats and of calves, but by his own blood he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. For if it were possible that the ashes of an heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctified to the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works? It is the blood of Christ. It is He that is its agency. It is He then that can make you and me stand in the right way before Him. It is never ceases to be an amazing fact that men concoct many schemes to offer self-help and other ideas to be right with God when it simply isn't so. It must be based upon Christ, and if it isn't, then the foundation is a faulty one. It shall crumble, for is it not still true that other foundation can no man lay than that is laid which is Christ Jesus, 1 Corinthians 3.11. These thoughts hasten us to conclude that ch chapter by noting the idea and desire of Paul to preach and to warn. Paul wasn't interested in proclaiming a tickling gospel something that only always was in the realm of encouraging what one felt. There are times we each need to be warned. There are times we each need God to step four square on our toes and say, straighten up. You need to do better for there's coming a day when I'm going to judge you. Notice that Paul said he not only preached, but in that process he warned. May we be thankful for elders and for godly brothers and sisters in Christ who have the love for our soul to warn us when they detect something that may be amiss, when they encourage us to greater and more powerful works for the Lord. For in fact, they would be the best friends that we have on earth. These thoughts conclude the chapter by saying, Whereunto I also labor, striving according to his working, which worketh in me mightily. Paul didn't take the credit nor glory for himself. He said, it's Christ that works in me. Anything that's mighty is his accomplishment through my body. 
You and I each have the capability of performing various gifts in service to Him, 1 Peter 4.10. In the accomplishment of those works, may we wonderfully honor Him by giving Him the credit for it. In chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, might we notice that the division of the sacred scriptures into chapters was done by man. Thus, in the original Greek, this flowed naturally from chapter 1, verse 29, only to chapter 2, verse 1, if you will, one continuous consideration and paragraph. In verses 1 through 3 of this chapter, Paul writes, For I would that ye knew what great conflict I have for you, and for them at Laodicea, and for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh, that their hearts might be comforted, being knit together in love, and unto all riches of the full assurance of understanding, to the acknowledgement of the mystery of God and of the Father and of Christ, in whom are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. These treasures of wisdom and knowledge, it's certainly a fair thing to appreciate that those treasures of which we're going to read, we should begin in verse 1 and set the proper foundation for, for that verse. Truly has been so meaningful to many of us, no doubt, throughout our lifetimes. He begins by saying in verse number 1 that he himself felt a great conflict. The Greek word means a struggle. Paul had a difficulty in mind to some regard in relation to these Colossian brethren. What was so troubling them? What was so bothersome to them? We've already noted these false teachers were in fact waging warfare on their spiritual condition, teaching them things that not only were not true, but called into question the superiority and the preeminence of Jesus. Paul thus felt a struggle not only for this congregation, but for even the one at Laodicea, and for others that had never seen his face in the flesh perhaps wondering if he, by his presence, might have been able to more thoroughly ground the congregation. But by whatever means, Paul expressly felt. He felt a struggle in that regard. His desire so intently and so strongly in verse number 2 was this, that their hearts might be comforted. It is a wonderful thing to have a comforted heart, isn't it? To have a heart that is understanding of the blessing offered through God, of the character of what God offers through the wonder of His Son. Not only that, specifically that those hearts might be knit together in love. Paul understood well that a congregation that is bound together in love is a congregation that a false teacher and others like their kind would have a difficult time making any penetration into. For you see, they're bound together not only to one another, but that love has bound them together to the very Savior who died for them, bound and knit together in love, and unto all riches of the full assurance of understanding. Might we pause a moment and note something about that unity of which Paul speaks, that they might be knit together in love and unto the full assurance. That issue of being knit together, isn't that a rather powerful thought? In fact, in Christ, there is really only one. Did Jesus, on the very night prior to His crucifixion, not pray in the Garden of Gethsemane, Father, that they may all be one? Oneness. The pinnacle of unity. Later in Galatians 3.28, Paul would reiterate that thought. 
when in the very aftermath or conclusion of his statement that ye have all been made children of God by faith in Christ Jesus, for as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ, and then he says that we are in fact one. There's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither male nor female, there's neither bond or free, but you're all one in Christ. That oneness reminds us that such is still true of the Pippin congregation. We are one in Christ. And that oneness is seen in the language of verse number 2 in these words. Unto all riches of the full assurance of understanding. We can easily see again that Paul's addressing this Gnostic matter. They were teaching this special kind of knowledge and that you need to be lifted up by what we have to say to you. Paul said, now brethren, it is true you have access to the full assurance, not partial assurance, not some assurance, not a bit of assurance, the full assurance of understanding. If only again men would have long since appreciated and mastered the concept that it is sheer fantasy for anyone to claim a specialized knowledge that has not been given to others. <clears throat> on Wednesday evenings, we have seen more than one instance when someone operating on that very premise has been the initiator of an organization that bears one or other names that give homage to men. As, for example, Ellen G. White. As, for example, some of those others that we've most recently mentioned on Wednesday evening who claim to have a special knowledge and to know something that God only had given to him or her. If only we would have mastered concepts like this one tonight, such could never have deluded the minds of men. This matter continues in verse 2. Paul, what is this full assurance of understanding? To the acknowledgement, notice, that is to say, to the full recognition of the mystery of God. The mystery has been revealed, Paul said. This mystery is in fact Christ. The American Standard Translation renders that verse a bit more interestingly in the sense of an openness of what's proclaimed from the Greek. It reads it in the following fashion. To the acknowledgement of the mystery that they may know the mystery of God, even Christ. Paul identified yet again the mystery. Jesus has come. He came in the flesh. He was the Son of God. He has set forth for us the entire plan and will of God in that regard. It is thus no wonder that this matter can be closed in verse 3, which will be the last verse of our study this evening, by making the following statement. In whom are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge? Paul, where then are the treasures, the riches, the beauties, and the glory of knowledge and wisdom found? Are they in the genius of men? Are they in the speculations and the various other concoctions of men? They are not. They are to be found, all of them, in Christ. It would be fair to pause and note some of the other passages in which concepts not unlike that one are presented. In 1 Corinthians 1, verses 24 and following, Paul addressed that congregation in Corinth, the knowledge center, if you will, of the ancient world. Corinth was known for... It's mindset just like Athens was, that these scholars and philosophers and others were happily there able to discuss matters of great learning. And when Paul came to Corinth, what did he say to them? Chapter 2, verses 1, 2, and 3. He said, 
I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and Him crucified. You see, Paul was eloquent. He would have been able to stand toe-to-toe with the greatest learned intellectual of ancient Corinth, and yet Paul said, what good would that do? He said, I determined to know nothing among you save Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And should that not be our approach today? To stand fully upon that which He's revealed, for all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are in Him. An interesting statement in Ecclesiastes 12, verse 12, reminds us that of the making of many books, there is no end. One can proceed to the Library of Congress in Washington, D.C. and find multiplied millions of books that men have written, but there's not a single one of them that can offer anything close to what the Bible does. There's not a single one of them that can offer human redemption, the plan of salvation, the aspects of totality of what it's like to be in heaven, none of them. All the treasures of wisdom and knowledge found in Christ. We should instill that not only thoroughly within ourselves, but in our children. Those whom we are able to drop nuggets of truth to each day. For when men choose to seek knowledge and wisdom elsewhere, they seek it in vain. They seek it in places where it shall never be found. Why? Because Paul says, all of it is here. It might be worthy of note that that word all is in the Greek text. He didn't say some of it's in Christ, a portion of it, a little bit of it, perhaps most of it. All of it is in Christ. Maybe one last time we can reiterate what those Gnostics would have felt upon hearing a statement like that. They felt they had the key to at least some special knowledge. They felt that without them, men would not have access to it. And Paul said, gentlemen, you're mistaken. All the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are in Jesus. He is that mystery that has now been revealed. Though Elijah and Elisha and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and the others looked to the time that he would be able to present man the great blessing of God, they never lived to see it. You and I live in an age when not only can we see it, we can enjoy all of its blessings and all of its benefits in full. As we draw near the conclusion of the lesson this evening, the fullness then of the mystery now being revealed leads us to conclude and maybe summarize some of the thoughts in this way. The wonderful mystery set forth, that is the gospel. Jesus Christ has, in fact, brought to us the greatness of all that shall ever be revealed. Is it not true that His covenant and His testament is superior to the old, Hebrews 8 verse 6? It is a better covenant in every regard. That betterness is seen not only in that way, but in the greatness of its high priest, Jesus Christ himself. Have you bowed before that high priest tonight, turning your life over in full compliance to his commandments? If you have, then you know that this is not a mystery in the same way that one would buy a mystery book. The suspense has been lifted. The veil has been taken away. We've seen it. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Does Christ's word dwell within you? Are you an open embodiment each and every day of all that He's revealed and testified? If so, thankful unto God shall we all be for that, for, that, for that matter. For we know that upon faithful living until death, heaven will be our home. But friend, if you're not a Christian, if you have never allowed all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge to find embodiment in your life, come before Him tonight, making an humble confession in the aftermath, if you will, of your belief, your repentance and your confession. In so doing, someone will aid you in your baptism. 
on that occasion, Christ will add you to his church. He'll forgive your sins. You'll be a new creature, 2 Corinthians 5, 17. The old things are passed away. All things will have become new for you. If you'd like to start anew tonight, let us aid you in doing that. Or if you need to rededicate your life, come back to that first love indeed. But if either of those things is your heart's desire tonight, will you not let it be known? For together we stand and while we sing.